welcome to another edition of Chapters. In studio today, I am delighted to welcome Beth Knaus. Welcome, Beth. Thank you so much. I met Beth through our mutual friend, Jennifer Gulbrand. And Jen uh, has a book out called She Breathes Soul Stories, which is a compilation of 22 stories that women have written. They are stories of triumph over tragedy. They're stories of resilience, of bravery, of courage. And most importantly, they're stories that are really authentic. And I know in reading these, I was really struck not only by the courage and bravery it took to share them, but also with how important it is that we share our lived experience uh, and the stories of our past with people. Because when we do that, there's a huge healing opportunity that happens, especially when people realize they're not alone. And Beth's story is exactly one such story. So I know that I've teased the story for a little bit, Beth. Why don't we have you share share the story? Okay. So I guess I'll give a little bit of background. Uh, I like to point out that I was an only child in a double alcoholic home. Mm. <laughs> And my parents were pretty happy. I, I was thinking about this today, like in uh, preparation for talking to you, in that, you know, they pretty much were calm during the week and they went out on the weekends and partied, you know. And I can see in childhood pictures that on Sundays my parents are pretty hungover. You know, you can see the bags under their eyes and they're pale and, and all that stuff. And I remember that, like, stay quiet, everybody's got a headache kind of mm-hmm. feeling and vibe. But... During the week, my dad went to work. My mom cleaned the house. She served dinner. And on the weekends, they went out. But then when I was seven and um, my dad chose to get sober, which, thank the Lord, uh, my mother just plummeted into alcoholism. And she was, you know, generally abusive and violent with both of us Mm -hmm. um, in different ways at different times. And... You know, it's the early 1980s, late 1970s, even before then. So um, even in the early 70s. And she was protected like so many people protected her. And as I got older, of course, I could see like, why? Why is she doing this? Like, you know, this is my mom. And she was not a warm and fuzzy person. In fact, she would often push me off her lap and say, you know, I, I can't breathe. You, ha- you know, get off me or that sort of thing. And there were times when she was very pleasant, like when we were on our neighbor's patio and she had a drink or two and then she would want me to sit next to her. And there was this constant back and forth. Um, but a lot of the times when we were alone, she... I was the victim. She would come after me. You know, she would get angry. She would get drunk. She would say insulting things. She was, you know, she would do things that scared me. And, you know, if my dad was out, she would say, I'm going to, you know, hide a knife. And when your father comes home, I'm going to kill him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I would literally stay awake. I was young enough that that scared the crap out of me. And my dad would come home knowing that, she had passed out and he would literally go into the bedroom and bring the knife out, (laughs) you know, like he knew there was no fear because she would only say that if she was really, really um, inebriated. But as a kid, I didn't know that. And I would stay up and wait for him to come home so I could say, you know, you're in danger. Beth, um, to the outside world, Mm -hmm. and I'm imagining this now, but to the outside world, could people in school, could other people from the outside know that this was going on? 
So I think I had one or two friends who did once I got a little bit older. But no, like I don't I don't remember talking about it other than the fact that I had a best friend who her mother and my mother were friends of sorts. And my mother often called her mother when she was my mother was drunk. Mm -hmm. And so I know that her mother knew and actually, my friendship was ended because our mothers had this huge fight. And what a heartbreaking story that is! Oh yeah. God, that was brutal. Yeah, that's yeah. in this in this book, and um, and I only can I can only imagine knowing at that age, puberty, roughly. Right. I mean, there is nothing more important than a in a young teenager's mind than their friends, right. particularly girls. Right. I, I, you know, at that age. And to have your mother sabotage that relationship must have been absolutely traumatic and heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. It was just, it was horrible. And of course, at the time, I, I thought it was my fault. Right. That's what I was led to believe. So, you know, that, that leads me to my next question. And that was, <clears throat> I'm imagining again, most, most kids that are in abusive homes feel a sense of responsibility how else they don't know how else to process what's going on right so it must be my fault mm -hmm. did that stick with you i don't know if feeling like things were my fault stuck with me again i know we're going to get into talking about my dad and recovering the things that i learned there mm -hmm. but i definitely have been a fixer over time for the sake of well if i can fix things and put the fire out before it's out of control we don't have to get to a place where someone's saying it's my fault. Get it. Yeah. So uh, people pleasing, uh, being, a, being a solution person becomes right. part of your DNA, right? Because yes. it was survival for that little girl. Oh, totally. Totally. Right. And yeah. I was on my own, you know, not having siblings. I was so going like... to say, so you're an only child in this environment. And, mm -hmm. and we're about, there's a lot of good news in this story. And, and, and the courage that it takes to tell this story is, is just incredible. Um, and like I said, I think it's a story that needs to be shared. There are so many people either currently or have, that have lived through uh, something similar to this. I remind folks, we are speaking with Beth Knaus. My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can hear us here at WFPR 102.9 FM every Friday, 9 a.m., noon, and 6 p.m. And if you don't catch the live broadcast, head on over to WFPR.FM, click on Past Shows, and there's a link to our podcast, Chapters with Jim Derrick. And so, Beth, um, you're a little girl, and, and we've kind of, I don't want to say glossed over, but we've, we've kind of summarized what was going on in the home as I mentioned before, the outside really can't see it. You've got a best friend whose mom has clicked in that, hey, we've got a problem here because she speaks to your mom. What's going on in school? Uh, how are you surviving in school and with your relationships? Uh, do you feel abnormal or do you think, my gosh, this is the way I've always known things, so it's just part of my DNA? Well, and I think it was a time where you didn't necessarily talk about that sort of stuff and what was going on like today where everybody is talking about their feelings, which I think is great. Um, but I was a good student. Um, you know, I got a lot of positive reinforcement from teachers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my mother was dutiful. I like to say that. She was dutiful. I was well-dressed. I was well-mannered. I was well-fed, all that stuff. It was the emotional piece where there was that void. And so I think I got that at school. And 
you know, if I had good grades, my mother would brag to someone else about my good grades because that gave her, I guess for her, she felt like, oh, look, I must be a good mother because. Um, So I don't know. I think school was good for me. And so you were able to negotiate your school environment. There was that best friend that you had as a little girl who, and, and as I said to you before, I can't imagine anything more important to a little girl than her friends. And your mother, unfortunately, sabotages one of your your best friend's yeah. relationship, right? She was my best friend. We were constantly at each other's houses. I was at her house more. I think her mother was probably navigating that. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, my mother told me that I wasn't allowed to be friends with her anymore, that, you know, her mother was upset with some things that I did. And uh, she said, I don't want you, you know, talking to her anymore. And so I went on for years thinking that it was my fault. Yes. Yeah, of course. Of course. And in fact, it was what? Close, close to, to four decades before you find out from your dear friend that it wasn't your fault. Yes. And she was totally blown away that I didn't know the story. How sad is that, right? Yeah. So this little girl is is feeling, again, we, we're talking about the responsibility. You feel responsible for, for what's happening, right? Um, and you said you feel a real sense that you have to solve any problem that comes up because if you don't, it could be really traumatic what happens, your mother's reaction to things, right? Yes, absolutely. So you become the solver. Yeah, Definitely the fixer. Like, how can I put the fire out before, you know, there's too much damage? In the book, you start, and and the name of Beth's contribution to this book is called The Weight of Choice. And I love that you selected that title. And we'll talk more about the choices that, that come up that are so instrumental in this book. You start out Thanksgiving of 1994 with your then husband traveling to see, among other people, your parents uh, in a room to tell them that you, at, a, at 28 years old, you're finally going to have a baby. And you're expecting that joy. You're expecting people to join you in that. And your mother's really important in this story. Every girl, every woman needs her mother to be excited for something like this. And you're met with nothing like excitement. No, not at all. In fact, just real, like, numb indifference. Uh, you know, we had pulled her aside to let her know, and she just very flatly said, congratulations. And then as we went, you know, into the living room with, you know, I don't know, about 10 or 12 other people, everybody fawned over us the way you would expect. You know, when is the baby due? Did you pick any names? How are you feeling? You know, all the things. And my mother said nothing. You know, she didn't ask one question. She didn't contribute or comment when other people asked questions. And I could see that other people were looking at her like, what the heck is going on with this lady? But I was so distracted by being in conversation with those people that it wasn't until I got home that I was like, I can't believe my mother said nothing. And then the weeks went by. I got to six weeks and she didn't call me to ask me anything to talk to me about it or say, why did you tell me in that way? Or I just thought, what could she be so angry about, you know? Um, and of course, I don't have the answer to that question. But I, I then decided, like, this is toxic. It's manipulative. This has been most of my life. And I, this is not what I want my family to be exposed to. I'm, I'm not I don't not going to have her in my life. And I wrote a letter saying those things and saying, you know, if you choose to get sober, I'm more than happy to work on our relationship and have you be involved with the family. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I just, I never heard from her. And that was a choice that you made to draw your own boundary and really one, I think, drawn out of love. And I think a lot of people have trouble with that. And you mentioned this in your, in your story that you feel a lot of judgment for, you know, who could write their mother off? Who would do that? And there's a big difference between writing an alcoholic mother off and an alcoholic father off, right? Oh, absolutely. Everybody co-signs writing off a a, a dude, right? I'm sorry, a dude, a a, a guy. Right. Right? Because that's what you do. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you hear people say, oh, good riddance. He was no good. You know, you'll find someone else. But when it's your mother, people say, oh, it's your mother. Why do you you think that is? I think it's just this, well, I think this is generational societal stuff, but like everybody thinks that women need to be protected and, you know, the mom takes care of everybody. So you need to take care of the mom. And but that's when a mom is taking care of people, right? right? Not abusing the people in her life. And so I think so it's rare, first of all, I think for it to be the mom who's in that situation and even more rare to know if there's that situation existing in the lives of the people around you. Because like I said, you don't want to say that Mm -hmm. uh, to people. You don't want to talk about it because you're being judged. Mm -hmm. So I just, I I think for a long time people expected, you know, it, it, you know, men to, to go the wrong way or do the bad thing, but it was never the mother. The mother was always making sure everything was fine. The kids were taken care of and uh, all that sort of stuff. And your dad, we're going to talk about shortly, your dad actually provided much of the nurturing that that little girl needed. And that's the good part of the story. People do have this sense that moms are to be taken care of. And in a, in a quote, normal or non-alcoholic family, that's certainly certainly can exist that way. I'm, t- I'm trying to in- put myself in your shoes and think about being judged. Gee, you're a little girl growing up in these traumatic circumstances. Your mother threatens to kill your dad in alcoholic rages. You're subject to all sorts of abuse and um, shame and stigma. You're the only child, so so you're really having to learn all these survival skills on your own. And then to be kind of shamed for calling it like it is with your mom has to be really deflating at times and takes a certain amount of resilience to to not shrink away from that and start co-signing that and saying, oh, you're probably right. I'm going to stop talking about this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm curious. You have three adult children now. Yes. And you brought them up pretty much as a single mom most of the time or. Um, so, no, I'm uh, I'm remarried. I've been remarried for 10 years. Oh, OK. And um, my now husband has been around since. um I don't know, since my kids were, they were under 10. So okay. he's been around. Okay. Um, but, but you've had to, to, to bring up these kids. And I, and I, you know, I think about my relationship with my parents, which happily they're both still alive. They're in their 90s. And for years, I never understood why my mother was the way she was. And, you know, she's a wonderful mom. I love her to death. And like all of us, she has, there's complicated parts of her. Um, and I just never knew that she grew up in an alcoholic home because she never shared the story with us. And I feel really sad about that because there were times that I became frustrated with her, not knowing that, that her reaction to life was based on intergenerational trauma that, you know, and the alcoholic abuse that she suffered from, from her mom. So the fact that you're willing to share the story with your kids how do you think that impacted them? 
So I think there are a lot of things. I think that, you know, I didn't tell them, obviously, when they were little, but they knew there was a woman who wasn't around mm-hmm. who was my mother. And I, you know, always worried, like, are they going to think that I'm I'm a bad person because I'm not talking to my mother? And so, you know, in the way that we explain things to kids, I would say, you know, sometimes people make this choice and they choose to drink and, you know— that sort of stuff and say, and then they can't control it. And, you know, it's sad, but it doesn't mean that we have to keep subjecting ourselves to it, you know, and just trying to explain why would somebody not want to be connected to their mother. Right. Right. And they knew I was so close to my dad and my dad was remarried. And so I think that was one of the pieces where they were like, oh, well, she has a good relationship with these people. So what did this other person do that was so bad that she's not talking to her? Mm -hmm. Because really, who do you know who doesn't talk to their mother? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Sacred, sacred ground. Yeah. Right. Call your mother every Sunday. You know, whatever. Right. Right. No matter what. And so by telling this story, they've got a connection a straight line connection back to that little girl. And they're now in their 20s and 30s. Right. So they can they can start to understand, do the math and say, right. wait a minute. We, we now we understand. And I just find it so courageous of you to do to tell this story so authentically without sugarcoating a thing. And by the way, not as a victim and not that not that you wouldn't have a right to to be in a victim. Certainly that little mm-hmm. girl's a victim of circumstance. But there's so much empowerment that I feel in your presence here and in reading this story um, about an adult that learned how to process this by doing it, by calling it what it was, Mm -hmm. an abusive situation by a person that had a terrible illness that they could not or would not find the willingness to recover from. Right. Um, And you're just honest about it. Yes. How refreshing. You know, how many stories have I told my kids or how many things by not telling them the whole story authentically have I left them to fantasize about what might really be going on here so you've given them permission to be authentic in their own lives and shown them the healing power of that right Right. And like I said, when they were younger, you know, I tried to talk about it in much more simpler and general way. But, you know, they're all in their 20s now, so they can handle it at this level. Like I didn't talk about it like I do in the story in the book because I didn't want them to feel bad for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I never wanted them to feel bad for me because I feel fortunate Mm -hmm. because of the things that came out of growing up the way I grew up, meeting the people I met, spending the time where I spent it. Yeah, and, and, and let's talk about that. It's such a heartwarming story, and that's the story of your dad and your relationship with your dad. Yeah. Uh, great man, wasn't he? Yeah, he was awesome, and um, I'm glad that I have an opportunity to talk about him. Mm. So his name is Bill, Bill Griffin, which was always interesting, right, being in AA circles, because, you know, Bill W. is who, you know, kind of brought everything together, and... Um, I love that his name was Bill. I used to think that he did start AA. Friends of Bill. (laughs) Friends of Bill. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my dad sponsored so many people and helped so many people and knew so many people. I, you know, I'm sure at some point when I was younger, I thought that he was Bill W. I don't know. (laughs) So, so your parents are drinking alcoholically and your dad decides to get sober. And how old were you when he made that decision? So I was seven, although I didn't know at the time because, you know, so I was seven. It's 1973. Uh You know, you could lose your job if your boss found out you were a recovering alcoholic or your family or, you know, you had a lot at stake. It wasn't something you went out and broadcasted. No FMLA or, yeah. 
right, yeah. right. Um, so you didn't tell people. And uh, I actually really struggled with the whole concept of anonymous. And my dad had to remind me about it quite often. But um, I was just super proud of him. So anyway, he didn't tell me when I was seven. Mostly, I think, because my mother was mortified and embarrassed. And, you know, she would say to him, oh, you're so weak. You know, you can't hold your liquor and, and, and all sorts of things like that. But she was petrified because she lost her drinking buddy, you know. Right, um, right. And that's a real, uh, yeah, uh, knowing other pe- couples that have yes. succumbed to this illness together. That's a tough thing. Yeah, yeah. When one t- decides to get sober and the other doesn't. Yes. So your dad goes, submits himself to AA. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, starts and- taking you. Yeah, he starts to take me when I'm about 11. So for three or four years, he tells me he's going to meetings at night for his weekend job, which was laying carpet, <laughs> I love which this. is very executive and corporate. And so, of course, there would be meetings at night <laughs> during the week. But, you know, I'm little. What the You're heck do I know? It? Who cares? Yeah. yeah. And you yeah. know what? I would have believed anything my father told me, to oh, be honest, great. you know. Um, and then finally, I'm like, I don't know, 11, uh, you know, and he takes me out and sits me down and tells me like it's this horrible thing, you know, like, I just want you to know I'm. You know, this is where I've been spending the nights. And he felt horrible that he had been dishonest. But, you know, I didn't think you were ready and your mom didn't want me to. And but, you know, I was an alcoholic and I drank too much. And of course, by the time I'm 11, I know what my mother's got an issue. And my father's talked to me about her. And he's, you know, he's like, and I'm in recovery and I go to this place and, you know, it's called Alcoholics. And I'm like jumping for joy because I know now I have this parent who's not drinking. I know what the parent who's drinking is like, and I don't need two of those. You've got somebody totally out of control and someone who's reclaiming control in his life. Yeah, I'm living A and Z. <laughs> I'm know? going there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Go to the light. Yeah. So I was super excited. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you cannot tell anyone. You cannot tell anyone, Beth Ann. You know, I remember him saying it. It's anonymous. You can't tell anyone. And um, I was like, okay. And then, of course, here's that nonconformist piece, right? (laughs) I think to myself, I should get to tell one person. (laughs) (laughs) I just really need to tell one person. So I go back to this previous best friend who I was still having this limited relationship with in school. And I tell her, and we're in middle school, and we're outside, and I'm like, oh, my God, my dad is recovering, and he doesn't drink anymore, and he's an alcoholic, and this and that. And I can see that she's like, shh, don't, don't stop. People can hear you. And I was like, oh, this is the problem. Like, it hit me like a brick. I was like, she was like, you, you don't want other people to know that. And I was like, oh, oh, this is really interesting. So the shame starts to... Oh, I'm supposed to be ashamed of this, right? Yeah. And it, she was very like, I don't know. She certainly wasn't as excited as I was. I was thrilled to death. <laughs> yeah. And she was like, oh, you know, you shouldn't. I, I have to go. I have to go to class now. And I was like, not really sure what just happened, but OK, I guess I better be aware of this thing. Yeah. So, so I mean, we're smiling now, but I, I think of that little girl and that's that, that's another heartbreaking and really disassociative thing. Right. Right. Like, what ground do I stand on now? Yeah. That was he was going to be the light here. Yes. I'm very proud of him. Very excited. Right. And now I'm told, put that in the shame bucket and shut your mouth. Yeah. If you know what's good for you. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, that goes on. So I, I start to go to AA meetings, which I think nothing of. I'm an only child. I've been surrounded by adults. 
you know, my whole life. I mean, the other thing I was thinking about today was that it had to be at least 80 percent men. And I think I'm being generous. I think you're being generous to that 20. Yeah. Right. Because (laughs) even today it's male dominated. Because we didn't know that moms were alcoholics. Mm -hmm. We didn't tell that moms were alcoholics. Moms were not. I think they were in many ways seen as stereotypically different types of alcoholics who were at home and maybe got a little sauced making dinner or... You take the edge off. Those kids, you know. Right. They didn't think about violence (laughs) or or abuse or anything like that. Whereas men, it was, are they going to get physically violent? Are they going to get angry? Are they going to fall down? Are they going to... You know, all these things were seen a little bit differently. So anyway, here I am, this little wafy girl in this room of all these men. And my dad was in this really big meeting. But it was like having a bunch of uncles. They were just so... Wonderful. I love this. I'm, you know, and you're to put it again today. It's still a stretch, right? <laughs> this story's still a stretch today with all the progress we've made with stigma right? and everything else. And you know, but to go back in mm-hmm. time to this little girl and your dad to have the courage to to walk you mm-hmm. in there and say, "No, I'm going to take care of this little girl," and I'm sure he was thinking, "There is no principle in this group." that won't be helpful to her in the long run. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Not that he was putting you in the program and getting you a right. sponsor at that age, but but this is a good group to be around. She's safe. Yeah. Right? And in, and in fact, one of the uh, members, a female member in AA, became a mentor to you when you started to need some some womaning advice, right? Yes. As, as you became older and your dad said, oh, I got a limitation here. I'm a guy. She needs a yes. role model, right? Yeah, well, I'll I'll tell you a funny story. When I was, I don't know, I guess I must have been somewhere around 13-ish, I needed bras. And my dad took me to a bra store. Yeah. And I remember, like, the women in the store were like, what the heck is going on here? Why is this dad here, you know, with this little girl? I'm sure it was horribly uncomfortable for him. Yeah. And I mean, I was in a dressing room and obviously and by myself and everything, but I'm sure there were very, very few men who took their daughters to be sized for bras. I would think so. And and what's he going to tell you? Yeah, it looks good to me. I mean, I don't know. Exactly. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, I mean oh, he's, he's uniquely limited. So, right. But I, man, I wish I met him. He just sounds like a great guy. I mean, just the fact that he would do that. Um, and have conversations, took you for birth control, took you for various things that you needed as you got older. Absolutely. And then I guess the way I read it in this story, the heartwarming part to me is somewhere there's an understanding that you need someone else. Yeah, somewhere he's like, there's a line and I'm not crossing it. I'm not talking about certain things. And And I've forgotten her name, but she she sits with you. and Jerry. Jerry, yeah. And did she become a long-term relationship? Um, we were close for a while. And then I think, you know, I mean, I moved to Boston when I was 22. Okay. I think when I got to about 18, 19, I also stopped going to as many meetings or. um, Interesting. So you kept going even as an older teenager. Oh, my God. It was, you know, a really strange thing because I had friends and I had friends who were out, you know, doing things you do when you're a teenager. And it's not that I didn't drink some pink champagne or, you know, Boone's Farm wine or whatever. But 
sometimes, you know, Friday nights were meetings. It was rare that I was with my friends. So I would go to meetings on Friday nights and then I would go out and do teenage things with my friends on Saturday. I'm trying to picture this because I would literally hide in my closet when my parents tried to take me to church <laughs> as a 14-year-old, but you're going to AA meetings. It's so cool. And this is your time. It must have been, I'm picturing this, you with your dad. Um, clearly, you loved him dearly, and mm-hmm. uh, he was really a, a hero for you, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And listen, I heard all kinds of stuff in those rooms that my <laughs> mother wouldn't let me, you know, watch certain TV shows and all this. I heard a lot of good stuff there. Good stories, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 And so, God, what a beautiful story this is. So you were all the way to the age of 18. You're still going to AA. Yeah, pretty much. And I, you know, was at every, like, annual anniversary for my dad, Um it was a big deal. They had an annual group anniversary. I was always there. I mean, I was like a mascot. You know, I walked in the room. People loved my dad. Mm. And like I said, he sponsored so many people and helped so many people. But I would walk in and almost get as much attention as him. I'll bet. So This is a lot of meetings. This is every Friday night. This is every Friday night, sometimes on another night. And actually, I used to get ticked off because, you know, Tuesday nights were step meetings, and those are private, um, and there's no visitors. And I thought, Pfft, I've been around here for years. I should be allowed to go to a Tuesday step meeting. I can run the meeting. Exactly. When do I go to the podium? Yeah, right. Exactly. I remind you, we were speaking with Beth Knaus. Beth has contributed to this wonderful book, She Breathes Soul Stories, uh, which Beth helped edit, uh, along with Jennifer Gulbrand. Um, Really terrific group of stories of inspiration, resilience, and survival, and lessons learned along the way by 22 courageous women, of which Beth is one. My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can hear uh, the show every Friday, 9 a.m., noon, and 6 p.m. right here on WFPR. Go over to uh, past shows at WFPR.FM, and you'll find the podcast there. So, Beth, um, I'm, you know, as this little girl goes through AA, I, I, this story, I mean, as someone who's in this field now, I mean, it's just and knows, has been to many AA meetings, it's just, it's almost... I mean, it, it almost needs to be a, and I know you're working on a memoir, by the way. I am. Which uh, I hope these stories are going to be firmly embedded oh, in this yes, memoir. Oh, yes, they are there. Because <laughs> I envision like almost a mini series. Yes. You know, uh, following Bill or, you know, uh, right. I, I just, it, it's um, it's a great, great story. So your dad, you're, you're 18, you go on to, to college, right? From uh, yep. around that time. Where did you go to school? So I went to community college. I actually was became a licensed hairdresser in high school, right. which was another nonconformist action. And um, then afterwards, I went for a degree in small business management. Yeah, before we skip over that, you actually owned your own salon. Right. When I first moved to Boston, yeah. um, I worked for a couple of crazy people. And I was like, either I'm going to change careers or I'm going to open a business. And, you know, I was 22 years old and... Um, I just didn't think anything of it. I was like, I'm just, I'm just going to, what does it take? I'm going to get a lease. I'm going to buy some equipment. I'm going to hire some hairdressers. <laughs> well, you know what, Beth? I'm pretty, pretty gutsy for a 20 something year old. And another point that your mother couldn't meet you. Yeah. You hadn't yet written her the letter yet to, to tell her that right. you wouldn't communicate with her. Um, that came six or seven years later. But here's another point where she just wasn't 
at all going to meet you and say, hey, good job, way right. to go. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Um, so you're still, your mother's still actively drinking. You've been to all these AA meetings with your dad, um, but yet you, you're willing to take risks. You're willing, you're, you're a, a, so, a solution person. Right. Again, you were working in a business that where the two owners are nuts and you say, well, I'll fix this. I'll, yeah. I'll open my own salon. Yeah. I think I, um, I think I learned to rely on myself at such an early age yeah. that it was like, I don't need anybody's help to do this. I can. Do, I remember my dad saying, "You know, when you've had some experience and you, uh, and I, and I have the money for you, I'll help you open the business." And I remember calling him like a few months later and being like, "Listen, I just signed a lease. I'm opening this <laughs> business uh, on credit card advance." And he was like. Ooh, okay. What step now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what? I paid it off. And Did he help you out? No. Oops. He wasn't ready. He wasn't ready. Uh, you know, he wasn't he, ready. He jumped the gun. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I guess so. I'm really curious. There is so much talk and knowledge that we, we do know that alcoholism has a genetic component in addiction. Right. We do know that anecdotally that many stories like yours have in them that I am now an alcoholic too in recovery or I'm an alcoholic and I'm still using or other members of my family have been affected. And there are also just human stories of people that shrink from this type of abuse and, and why wouldn't they? What do you think the differentiator was for you? Do you think it was genetic that you just had a survival mechanism? Is it the relationship with your dad? How did you survive this, this type of upbringing? Yeah, so I think it's it's two things. I think the first thing is that my dad had this, uh, you know, generations of alcoholism. I, I remember doing Ancestry.com and finding out that my great-great-grandmother had actually been thrown into an, an asylum because she was an alcoholic. So they labeled her as crazy. Very interesting <clears throat> story. You know, his father was a park bench bum, and I think... Something must have happened for my dad. Like his mom was super strong. She was a tiny woman, four foot eleven. Um, she became the superintendent of a building so that she could have an apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, she just really knew how to make things happen. She took care of her two sons. And um, so I think my dad knew he didn't want to be like his dad. He wanted to provide a living and put a roof over our heads and all that sort of stuff. And he did pretty well for a long time. He worked for the Long Island Railroad, which wow. was a really coveted position. So, you know, God was looking after him. And I think at a certain point, he must have been like, my luck's going to run out. I think I'm going to get sober. I don't really know what the last turning point was for him. I'd love to know, but I don't. Um, I'm sure also being a parent was part of it and seeing, just knowing what was going on at home and that sort of thing. But so I don't think he really had anybody to look up to as a parent. So... The years that he was parenting me, that he was sober, everything was about, you know, accountability and just dealing with things in the moment and having acceptance and patience and compassion. And one of the things, you know, the questions that you asked me, he talked so much about facts and feelings, you know, and um, he used to say, it's okay to sit on the pity pot. I'd love to join you, but there's only room for one expletive at a time and he would say that to people he was sponsoring and they would get you know like shocked like did you just say that to me and he's like it's the truth you know you're entitled to feel sorry for yourself but when you're done you still have to address whatever the issue is and so I grew up hearing those kinds of things I mean it's the way he spoke to me it's the way I heard him speak on the phone to people it's what I heard in the rooms and 
you know, that's really how I raised my kids. I mean, I didn't have a mom who was a role model. I had my dad. And so my kids know those things. And it's not like they walk around saying, oh, step number 11 is this. You know, and it's not like my dad spoke to me that way, but he learned it. It changed his life. And so he used it to improve our life without saying, oh, because, you know, people will be like, oh, it's a cult. Oh, it's this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's really not. It's just a mindset. Right. It's a way of thinking. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, it's called the design for living, a design for living. Yeah. And and surviving in a healthier way than the way we were surviving. So I think, you know, he really broke that generational thing. So he was the first one to get sober. So I was the first generation to not be an alcoholic. My kids were the first generation to not live in an alcoholic household. My dad had a GED. I had a two-year associate. And all three of my kids have graduated from four-year programs, and I have one who's going on to medical school. Wow. So it definitely affects your life and what's possible and you know i'm not and it's not perfect i used to think like oh i had all these things in my life you know my divorce my parents divorce the alcoholism like oh i'm just you know a misfit and everybody has stuff right everybody has stuff it's just how are you handling it right how are you getting through it how do you make choices how do you make decisions how do you choose to move forward and set boundaries and i think that has been you know, I feel like that's where I've learned it. I feel like my dad wanted to make a change. He made a change and then taught me how he made that change. What a beautiful description. I, I have goosebumps listening to you. I really, Thanks. really do. As, a, as someone who's in a 12-step program himself, who has dealt with addiction in his family, um, man, I'm telling you, that is... This needs to be a, a, a bigger book. I hope that's part of your memoir, this, right. this, these sure. lessons, because you're right. Um, when you go to a meeting like that and you're a regular attendant at the meeting, it's like osmosis. You're just you're you're you know, they, they say you are the company you keep. You are the food you eat. Well, you are the, what you're absorbing mm-hmm. on a regular basis. Sure. If I'm going to sit down and watch uh, trash TV, then I'm going to wind up thinking like Maury Povich over time. Yes. Sorry, Maury. But um, if I'm going to sit in an AA room, I'm going to absorb some of those principles. Thanks. And indeed, it is a choice. And, and the name of your contribution is called The Weight of Choice. Yeah. No accident. And, and there's the choice right there, right? What I love that you just said, though, Beth, is you didn't say, oh, I just kept thinking positive thoughts. Or I did validations every day in the mirror and then suddenly the stuff that was really happening wasn't important. What you what you said was I reckoned with what really happened here in a real and honest way, telling this story. You don't sugarcoat anything here. These things happen. Yeah. And then you had a choice. What am I going to do with it? Right. There's an expression in AA that people in recovery don't have secrets. Right. Oh, my gosh. So honest, right? Almost to a fault sometimes. I don't think so. Yeah. I, I I mean, I'm with you on this. You don't look. You just bared your soul in this. Yeah. Uh, in this story. And um, there's no secrets. And I think the benefactors are all of us, your kids, you mm-hmm. in an authentic life. I'm, I'm curious as to the reaction of this story, Beth. Have you had a lot of people come to you and say, well, can I tell you about 
what happened to me? And has this given permission to people that you know to share their stories? I definitely uh, made some connections. People came and said, oh, my gosh, I didn't get along with my mother either. Or people who said, I don't know anybody who doesn't get along with their mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not that it's it has anything to, with getting along, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, so there definitely were people who have come to me and said, wow, or like you're saying, like, wow, this is a really powerful story. This must have been so challenging and so difficult. And that's the other thing, right, is it allows people to have some empathy and compassion for a story that they can't relate to at all until they have somebody explain what it's like and what it does. Yeah, that, that's so true. And of course, we have adult, we have groups, uh, ACOA, Adult Children of Alcoholics is, right. a, is an important support group, have you, Al-Anon, things like that. Are those things you've done or was AA your your <laughs> training ground and your proving ground? So this is an interesting question because when I moved first to Boston, I lived in Somerville and I really missed going um, to meetings and to just being around people who were sober and actively in recovery. And I thought, okay, well, I can't walk into an AA meeting. It's not like I have a parent there, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I went to ACOA, and actually I made I, I made a friend who I'm still friends with today. And I went for a while, but it just wasn't the same for me. And I think, and uh, you know, we talked about that 80-20, like 80% men, 20% women. It's almost the opposite when you're at ACOA. Right. And I just felt like I wanted to go where the action was, where people were making it stop and learning how to, you know, keep it from happening again. And ACOA was about people coming back again and again, just trying to figure out how to deal with it ongoing. Mm-hmm. And I I just don't think I could deal with that. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> I understand. I understand. I uh, In my own support needs for living with a son who had um, suffered from... Uh, the same illness, addiction. And the reason why I'm in a 12-step fellowship is there is a solution. Yes. In other words, I needed to find my own recovery, independent. Sure. Uh, you know, he was my qualifier, but I needed to move forward with this. And that's what I've heard you've done is move forward with this story. Yeah. You are uniquely qualified to answer this. I mean, I think many people could benefit from hearing the answer to this. The little girl in you still needs attention, right? That that little girl. We never out. When I was sure. a kid, I always thought that adults had everything figured out, that adults uh, didn't have any problems, and that they had left being a kid way in the rearview mirror. And unfortunately, now at 63, I realize my little boy's in me and needs some attention. Sure. So uh, does that little girl crop up from time to time and you have to give her attention? Gee, you know, this wasn't your fault, things like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's usually someplace where I'm pushing myself or challenging myself to something else. And we deal with what I like to call the imposter experience. I don't like to say syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you're questioning, who do I think I am? What You know, and you can hear these voices. I mean, and not just my mother's voice. I mean, Nobody's perfect. And my dad wasn't perfect either. You know, he was somebody who was a blue collar worker. He made a good living. He was really thankful for everything he had. But he was also I think people of that generation in blue collar were very much like do things that are practical, do things that are going to make money. Don't you can't be a singer. You can't be a writer. You can't be. Those aren't real jobs, you know. And so sometimes I hear that. Be grateful for what you have. Don't draw attention to yourself kind of stuff. 
um, along with, of course, voices from my mother who thought I should have been an accountant and I would have stabbed myself in the eye. Although I cannot, <laughs> cannot live without my accountant. But, yeah. um, we love accountants. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it so wasn't for you. It comes up. Yeah. And, I mean, I feel like I have a list of really great achievements. And so I have to look back and say, you know what? I did this. I did this. I can do this, too. But, Cheers to that. And that's yeah. you. You've developed faith. Faith in yourself. Yeah, I do. I, I And again, I trust myself. I can rely on myself. Mm-hmm. I love what you're saying because it really is the weight of choice. The choices that you made even as a little girl are bearing fruit today. It's remarkable to me that the self-limiting beliefs that your mother tried to instill in you. Mm-hmm. You're not good enough. You never were. You won't be good enough unless I don't care that you're having a baby. I don't care that you're an entrepreneur. Those didn't stick. Or if they did, you were able to, you know, get out from underneath them with your dad's help and with your resiliency as a little girl. Yeah. I'm not just saying this. This this story needed to be told, needs to be told. And really, I, I have this vision of your dad. I just wish I could meet Bill. Bill Griffin. Oh, yeah. What a cool guy. Because he had sponsees, so you, you had this extended family. Right. He was so active in AA, right? Yes, of course. Yeah, you had this exp- ex- expanded and growing family. And, and, and sadly, your dad died along with your mom in 2009, right? Yeah, they died eight months apart. Yeah, yeah, tough stuff. One of the things I love is that uh, people today are really open about speaking about their recovery. Mm-hmm. And one person I really admire for that is Dax Shepard. He talks about it quite a bit. And um, I just always let people know I would love to meet him and have one conversation. <laughs> so Dax Shepard. Yeah. Every audience I go on, I'm like, if anybody knows Dax Shepard, I just want to have a phone call with him because I just love how he talks about recovery. Well, this is a shout out to you, Dak. Um, we will somehow <laughs> get this into your hands or at least into the right people that can hear it because Beth Knauss would love to hear from you. And, and as someone who's sitting across from Beth, I can promise you, you'd want to hear from Beth and Beth. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your courage and your honesty as someone who works with families in this field. These mm-hmm. stories need to be told. People need to see others that that is the basis for all recovery. We need to connect. Yep. That's what we're called to do as human beings. And connection is the gateway through which we all get better. And I thank you for your contribution to that. Well, thank you so much for letting me come on and tell the story. And I'm looking forward to your memoir. Yeah, me too. (laughs) So for my guest, Beth Knauss, my name's Jim Derrick. Thank you for listening to Chapters. I will see you next week. 